This is the Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast. It is episode 61, Monday, July 24th. Insight and perspective for members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Our guest this week is Jason Moss, Senior Marketing Consultant, Brock Associates. Jason Cooper is a research analyst in the studio. And Todd Voigt, Chief Investment Strategist, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you, Danny. I'll start it off with an overview to thank our listeners that have come back week after week. I know we're getting more and more Uh, even internationally. But if you like to share the podcast with a friend, that'd be great or a colleague. We'd appreciate it. We enjoy making these. Like to have you listen and spread the word means a lot. Today we have Jason Moss of Brock Associates. It's a commodity brokerage firm located in Milwaukee. And I'll let Jason talk a little bit more about that. But what I'd like to do today in this special broadcast is to frame it in the commodity market, and that's the topic of our SWAT, in terms of the four basic categories of commodities, agriculture, livestock, metals, mining, fossil fuel. you got producers, middlemen, processors, and final demand. So what's interesting about this, and, and I stress this enormously uh, often, that we're in a world of financial stocks and bonds and, and markets and so forth. I always say the commodity markets make the world go round. Okay, that's where the real action is and the impact on the companies that we invest in. And so I thought that it'd be interesting to have an expert more in commodities to talk through that. And that's why I have Jason Moss on here. The discussion, you know, when we talk about strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, it's from an investment perspective, not necessarily, you know, for example, if we have poor crop output and higher prices, that's bullish. It's from an investment perspective, maybe a good thing. But maybe the listener might say, well, I don't think it's that great because we have lower crop output. (laughs) So take it from the investment perspective and we'll start out with strengths and I'll turn it over to Jason Cooper. One thing that we've noticed over the last year has been the uh, strong performance from a price perspective for live cattle continuing to trend higher. We've heard about herd management in 2022, but now that we have the ability to access a professional, Jason, what's, what's your take on live cattle prices? Can you speak a little bit to what has driven the price appreciation and what's your outlook? Yeah, sure. What's going on in the cattle complex is really the the convergence of a couple big elements. Number one, the the age of the the inventory of the U.S. breeding herd or the cows that are kept year after year to keep having offspring. The the average age uh, of of the breeding herd is about nine, ten years old, which is very close to the, the useful life of a cow. And the last time that the U.S. breeding herd inventory bottomed was 2014, 2023 now. So we're kind of getting to that stage where we're running out of breeding stock or or they need to be replaced with new heifers. And having to take those out of the beef supply chain to keep them as reproducing animals has really hit the supply hard. That has converged with high corn prices, meal and protein prices, feeding cattle over the last couple of years has caused some, your higher cost producers have liquidated to prevent losing money. So it's just been this convergence of supply diminishing issues hitting all at once. In that livestock framework and in the commodity framework, the meat packers, where do you see that going from here? You know, we've got record, almost what appears to me, at least I ran it for 20 years, record high livestock feeder prices. Does that turn at some point? And what's the catalyst to, for that to turn? 
the one thing about commodities is when you get near all-time extremes, they really have exasperation, explosive blow-off tops, we call them, or the same thing on the extreme lows. We would think sometime this year that the cattle are going to have their, their blow-off top. The price will get to be such. You know, Feeder cattle usually is the last piece to drop in that you okay. have to start taking some of the feeders out for, for breeding stock. To put into context, the companies, for example, uh, Blumen would be positive because what's revenue to the to the ranchers is input cost to a, a Blumen's, you know, supplying steaks to their restaurants. So that could be a positive on the cost side when we look at margins of the companies. We do break them down from between sales and cost and the and the changes. One of the benefits for a company their size compared to maybe a mom and pop steak shop is the ability to go in and, and hedge, and that's right. something that they had done. So you think about size as a competitive advantage. The ability to lock in lower costs at the end of last year could provide them with the opportunity to undersell their competitors and take share in this environment. Conversely, when livestock prices decline, that's going to benefit them. They don't need the hedge. They'll benefit from lower prices. Sticking with animal protein, it seems like the demand for animal protein is growing significantly in the emerging economies. So, Jason, maybe from a more of a structural perspective, how do you see that demand trending? And what is that going to do just in general to all of the different inputs from an agricultural commodity perspective? Demand in the emerging economies for protein is going to keep going up. It's going to keep demanding more feedstocks. I kind of come from the ag world. I've got a bachelor's in ag economics from University of Illinois, master's in ag economics from Purdue. Going back to the late 90s, and it, you know, it's been just preached in the ag circles forever that how this explosion in demand and for animal protein, et cetera, and that trend hasn't stopped. Now, whether it's 2030 or 2040, where this, you know, where it's going to be at mission critical, I don't know, but they are trending stronger. With this inflation kind of affecting some world economies, you know, it might take China, for example. If China would start to see some recessionary signs, you know, that's one of the biggest threats, not to move ahead on your SWOT analysis, but to U.S. commodity, particularly crop commodity demand, is it would just stall some buying. They would start to move in towards recession. What about in weaknesses, Jason Cooper? I don't know, Todd. We've heard a lot about El Nino from you, so I feel like you should take this one. Uh, you know, I've been anxious to ask you, and if you know, you've got an opinion on this transition from La Nina to El Nino and the wet cool, but then interrupted by massive drought. There's a that hundred year drought cycle that I guess is technically ninety years. And the last one we had was the the Dust Bowl back in the thirty three thirty four area. Do you have an opinion on those weather patterns? And, and what I'm doing is I'm injecting the unpredictability, or maybe there is some predictability to weather patterns that might tie into the commodity framework. I do have an opinion on the weather. I, I farm myself and with farmer advisory business, I, I try to keep up on the weather, particularly in the middle of the growing season. And what's made this transition to El Nino different is that as we've transitioned towards El Nino, there have been a couple other major weather elements that have caused El Nino to not be the dominant weather influence on the Midwest crops. Number one is the Bermuda High, which is typically located off of the coast of Florida or that far south, has been up by, by Norway, you know, northern Europe. That's normally what feeds the moisture to the Gulf to give moisture to the Midwest, which is why we had this June drought. I mean, the reason that corn and soybean prices got kicked off to the the upside in June so strong was we had a pretty big widespread drought in the month of June from eastern Iowa through Ohio 
encompassing up into Wisconsin and Michigan. The other influence on the, or what makes the El Nino a little different this year is there's extremely cold water off the coast of California. All El Nino means is warm water or warming water on the equator in the Pacific. And with the cold water off the coast of California, it's, it's causing the jet stream to not flow from west to east like it normally does. But, but those are, are breaking down, and we expect El Nino to start taking more of an influence. And El Nino means a couple major things in the commodity world. Number one is good for U.S. crops in the Midwest. And number two, it's bad for crops in, in Australia, which brings to mind wheat. It's funny you say that too, because Australian wheat and then the dry, hot conditions of Asia, and then you throw in the Ukraine war and the Russians backing out of the Black Sea grain deal. Staying with that, and let's just call that a weakness. What is it going to mean for wheat prices in general and going forward? And what's your opinion about that? The market seemed to react more to Ukraine-Russian war headlines earlier this year and prior. Like we've known for some time that they, like over a month, that they weren't going to renew this grain corridor deal. Mm. So when they didn't renew that, I mean, wheat didn't really move higher. It was when they started doing a little bombing at the port that right. kind of moved it higher, but we're, we're lower today. So the, the market is kind of becoming so often that it becoming a known variable. But the size of the the world wheat crop seems to be getting a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller everywhere you turn. So from an opportunity perspective, who do you think benefits from that, the smallness of the global wheat market? Well, certainly not the U.S. consumer. We know that a dollar buys 19% less food now than it did in January of 2020 for meat and higher commodity prices in general. But the, the areas, I would say, that can plant more wheat acres, largely why the, the size of the world wheat stocks have declined has been this multi-year drought in the Great Plains, which the weather pattern this spring has largely alleviated. But right now, places that can expand some wheat acres would probably benefit the most. And are there any substitute crops that take share? Not as much because the season seasons are, are off. You know, you can plant wheat with beans as an alternative to only planting beans or only planting corn, which some could look at. Take a farmer who's making a decision to grow, could grow soybeans, plant them in the spring, harvest them in the fall. But with the price of wheat being as high as it is, to plant wheat in the fall, you harvest it in the summer and then you can get two crops out of it. You have a lesser soybean yield, but planting beans and wheat on the same acre in the same year is more dollars an acre that a lot of farmers have looked at in the last year or two. From the farmer's perspective, we're, we're two and a half years into a bull market in the grains and oil seeds. And then from an opportunities perspective with respect to enhancing crop yields, how does this impact the demand for certain industrial and fertilizers? Yeah. I guess what's big on the farmer's mind now is everyone has, with inflation kind of raising people's costs and the, the price of these material goods, you know, raising different people's cost of production is when they're going to pass on some of the, the price increase. It's expected that there'll be double digit increases in the price of seed to plant for this coming year. But fertilizer is down significantly from last year because it's largely tied to, to natural gas. Natural gas really caused fertilizer to explode to all-time highs last year this time because the non-ag demand pull on natural gas was so strong that it seemed like it was gouging uh, from the farmer's perspective, but it the, the supply, the, the chain was disrupted. Natural gas prices are lower, or maybe average long-term, but they're lower than they were, beneficial to food producers and, and farmers. While those soap, bean and 
corn wheat prices are higher, they have to be making out pretty good, which then allows them to, to buy deer tractors and, and things of that nature. But am I thinking that right? As a general relationship, you're right. The one caveat is the timing of that. You know, you purchase your fertilizer at a certain time or, or season of the year, and you, you can sell grain throughout the, the entire year. But right now, you are correct. Take this coming year. Looking at a gross margin of 2024 corn or soybean prices with the cost of fertilizer, just the gross margin on crop price revenue and that major input is more attractive than you would be looking at the coming year's crop the last couple of years. So it, it does look a little better. Anything else you got, Jason Cooper, on opportunities? I was actually more curious if you wanted to move the discussion to threats, especially with respect to food security. So I think if we saw that India implemented a, a ban on, I think, the majority of different types of rice from a food security perspective. So how do you see food security and nations responding to that on a go-forward basis? That's a great question. You think about how we interpret food security across the globe to developing economies. You know, food security means quantity. And for us rich countries, food security means food safety. And when it comes to food security on a, like India, as you're talking, Mexico is threatening, you know, banning GMO, genetically modified corn. China has played that game with the, the soybeans before. What they're trying to do is implement some measures to improve their their feed chain, but it, I don't see them, for the most part, being able to uphold that because in the end, you have they got such large populations to. I mean, we're threading a fine needle to get what we do grow across the globe into the hands that we do now and. If some of the biggest sources of demand would start getting a little overly selective or discretionary on the type, you know, some of these other elements of the type of commodity they're importing, I don't think they can sustain such a policy for too long of a time. Market's got to be relatively localized. I know you can ship wheat across the ocean and so forth from South America or Australia, but otherwise they're a little more localized to present some opportunities for for people in the commodity trading business to make money. Yeah, that's right. And I think it'd be a good reference for, for listeners. Think about the different types of wheat. The wheat that trades on the Chicago Board of Trade is soft red winter wheat, and it's primarily grown east of the Mississippi. That's the type of wheat that goes into cookies, cakes, and pastries. The wheat that is grown in the Great Plains trades on the Kansas City Board of Trade, and that's the wheat that goes into making bread hard red winter wheat. And then on the Minneapolis Grain Exchange, uh, you've got spring wheat that trades, which is a lot of the durum wheat that goes into pasta. And that's primarily grown in, or white wheat. It, it, and that's grown from the Dakotas to the Northwest. For example, there's been a drought in the plains. So buying Kansas City wheat and selling Chicago wheat has been a successful spread play in the last year. Staying on threats. I'm grilling all the time that, you know, the higher beef prices can be a concern. But if we anticipate or do we anticipate higher wheat, corn, bean prices, or maybe just wheat and corn going forward, how does that impact the ranchers and the decisions related to herd size? Or is it not that much of a factor? It's more of what you were discussing before. What, what does that imply? That part's interrelated, too, the, you know, the feed to the cattle and herd size. And this herd size, is that a threat to the herd size at all or to farmers expanding? Yeah, good question. I guess overall, we think that the grains are stepping off of this multi-year bull market. Not that we're going back to the, the long run average and, you know, by the end of the year, but 
we started prices up in late 2020 and we peaked last year. We've, we've stayed at historically elevated prices, but they're kind of stepping down, similar to what we did in 2010, 11, 12, and then stepped down for a year. Feed is 70 to 80% of the livestock budget to grow livestock, so it does mean quite a bit. I always say that the, the price of livestock rations more corn than the price of corn does, but if you were to say, are we near the bottom, are we near the, the middle, are we near the top, we're still near the middle top. We don't necessarily think we, we've got this large ceiling above us with massive room to grow, because Brazil for the first time is going to export more corn than the U.S. this year. They had a remarkable crop. They had a huge soybean crop. So South America, which is Brazil and Argentina, is a huge dynamic when you talk about what grain prices can do. We've already talked about it, but uh, Russia bombing uh, these grain export facilities in Ukraine, if that continues, that then goes from middle high to higher. I think we are just about out of time, unless Jason Cooper has any more threats. No, that's it. Thank you. All right. I think we can wrap up, Danny. Our guest this week, Jason Moss, Senior Marketing Consultant, Brock Associates. Jason, thanks for joining us. Yep. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Jason Cooper, Research Analyst. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. And Todd Voigt, Chief Investment Strategist, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.